Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. Should be toward the end of your New Testament, right before James, 1 and 2 Peter. I'll give you a moment to turn there. This is one of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. There are a handful of views on how to interpret these passages. I'll not be going through all these views this morning, but most convincingly and remaining faithful to the text, these warnings are designed to keep this Jewish Christian audience from falling away, from abandoning their weekly gathering, and ultimately from abandoning Christ. It's to keep them persevering to that final day when they would see Christ and be gathered with the saints in all eternity. These warnings function proactively, not retrospectively. In other words, they're not meant to have you looking back, testing the meter of your Christian authenticity. They have you looking forward, laying hold of the salvation that is found in Christ and are the means by which we persevere. Which is why, after the warning here in Hebrews 12, the author exhorts the church to run with endurance, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The warning is the means by which God accomplishes his ends, namely, our salvation. And it is to this warning that we now turn. Hebrews 10, 26-31. This is the word of the Lord. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Father, we come to hear from you. We know that your word is powerful. It creates life. It draws us to you. It sustains us. We pray that through your word, we would find encouragement and endurance through the earthly trials that we face. And because it is your word that does all these things, I pray that another voice than mine would be heard this morning. Preserve us from the sins which so easily entangle and trip us up, and may we run this race with endurance, pressing forward as we wait for the eternal city that is to come. Grant us a right spirit that desires to do your will and a heart that rests in the finished work of Christ. Grant us ears that take these warnings of judgment seriously, that we might not neglect the gathering of the saints and that we may persevere to the very end. Illuminate this text for us, and may we come 
confidently to the throne room of grace. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. The late John Shelby Spong, former Episcopal bishop and one of the leading influencers of the liberal Christian movement, once wrote a book titled The Sins of Scripture, exposing the Bible's text of hate to reveal a God of love. And this rather shocking exposition of what he sees as problems in Christianity, he writes the following on God's judgment. Here's what he has to say. Can you imagine that something so destructive and life-denying as sadomasochism, which is the pleasure of inflicting pain on others, has become overtly a part of the Christian story? Impossible, you say. Christianity is about life and love, not about pain and punishment. Well, before you dismiss this thesis, you might want to listen to the words from a hymn found in the Episcopal hymnal. Before thy throne, O God, we kneel. Give us a conscience quick to feel, a ready mind to understand the meaning of thy chastening hand. Whate'er the pain and shame may be, bring us, O Father, near thee. Wean us and train us with thy rod. Teach us to know our faults, O God. Can you visualize the scene being depicted in this hymn, he asked? Is there no sadomasochism present here? Are these not the picture of a quivering child before a punishing parent? Is this not an expression of a human need for punishment being drilled into believers by the church in multiple doses almost daily? The Bible again and again portrays a wrathful God's intention to punish the chosen people. On this diagnosis of the nature of our humanity, the entire Christian story tends to be based. Punishment is our due. We have earned it. We cover these neurotic aspects of our worship with layers of piety or with the smoke of incense, but they are always there, just below the surface. Is Bishop Spong on to something here? If God is a God who judges sin, is he no longer a God of love? If God is not a God of wrath, then what becomes of us and our sin? I wonder how you would answer Bishop Spong's polemic against the nature of God. There may be part of us that subconsciously agrees with what we just heard. We don't want to be judged by God. We like Jesus, meek and mild, but only that Jesus. The idea of God being wrathful and, and one who judges sin just isn't palatable in today's secular society. We want an affirming deity, one who lets us pursue our authentic selves. After all, this is who I was created to be. But the question before us today is what if God's judgment is necessary and good? And necessary for what? What if God's judgment is part of his good character? And what if God's judgment is what causes us to persevere into eternal life? And this is precisely what the author of Hebrews will argue in this passage and it is his main purpose for these warnings. And it is my main point for the sermon. Because God judges sin, 
we are urged to persevere into eternal life. That's my main point for the sermon. Because God judges sin, we are urged to persevere into eternal life. As I mentioned earlier, the author is writing to the church, the Jewish Christians. This is clear from many textual clues throughout the epistle. He writes to those who have shared in the Holy Spirit. The audience is described as those who are sanctified, set apart, made holy. It's a positional sanctification. They're described as sanctified seven times throughout this letter. In our immediate context, in this chapter, verse 14, he says, For by single sacrifice he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In verse 19, the author calls his audience brothers and consistently refers to them as we and repeats these let us exhortations, including himself in that. Later on in chapter 10, the author tells them that the real need is not for conversion, but for endurance. In verse 25, it is a neglect of gathering together as the church, which could cause some to experience the judgment described in our passage today. The author knows the church will pay attention to these warnings and persevere to the end because he tells them at the end of this chapter, we are not of those who shrink back. The writer exhorts his audience to do three things. Draw near, hold fast, and help others hold fast. They do this in the context of the local church. You cannot persevere without the local church. And here comes the author's warning. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Well, much has been made, whether this sin is a continuous act of rebellion or a one-time, singular, deliberate act. Depending on what translation you use, there are a couple different possibilities. Some translations highlight the phrase, keep on sinning, whereas others stress the deliberate, singular act. The former may be implied for a few reasons. One commentator writes, because of the present continuous action in the Greek, both the tense of the verb, they go on sinning, and the word willful or deliberate, show us that there is not any one particular sin in view here. It is the extent and the willfulness that is in view here. The unpardonable sin is not a particular kind of sin, but a particular extent and willfulness of sinning against great grace. This word for sinning is also used in chapter 3, verse 17. Israel had sinned in the wilderness. They rejected God's promises, his provision, and his protection. They subverted his law and even wanted to return to Egypt. Later in chapter 12, if we fast forward a little bit, the church is exhorted to lay aside every weight and sin which so easily entangles. What is present in this individual is an unbelieving heart. And who are those with the knowledge of the truth? It's the author and his audience. This phrase is found four times in the pastoral epistles, what we would call First and Second Timothy and Titus. 
each time referring to believers. And at one point in 1 Timothy, it is paired with salvation. God, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And if those with a knowledge of the truth abandon the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, you have nothing left. All these issues raise enormous questions. You might be sitting here this morning asking, well, I sin intentionally all the time. And sometimes I don't even feel remorse. What if I go too far? Will there come a point where Jesus' blood will no longer cover my sin? The answer to that is an emphatic no. This cannot be what is said. Precisely because of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 through 18. This is in the context of the new covenant. God will remember their sins no more. To use the author's own language here, we've been perfected for all time. No other sacrifice remains. We've been sanctified. We are not of those who shrink back. Nor is this passage saying that you can lose your salvation if you're a believer. There is no mention of loss at all here. There is no mention of an individual committing this sin. We have to be careful not to impose upon the text what is not there. But it is here as a reminder, as a warning, to not sin against this great grace, to keep persevering, to keep your confidence in Christ. This warning of judgment is the means by which we persevere. God's judgment is a serious matter, but is actually a great comfort to those of us in Christ. Because to the Christian, this judgment has been poured out on Jesus. We have all sinned and have incurred the wrath of the Father. We were enemies of God, separated from him and destined for destruction. But Jesus took the full cup of the Father's wrath upon himself that we would not have to. If you are willing, let this cup pass from me. He pleaded in the garden. The cup did not pass. He went willingly to the cross to be the propitiation for our sins, turning away and exhausting the holy and righteous wrath of the Father. On that cross, as Jesus died, reads the old hymn, the wrath of God was satisfied. And on the cross, Jesus cried, It is finished completing the work that he came to do. And when he rose from the dead, he vindicated himself. He became victorious. And he became victorious over sin and death because Jesus took the judgment that was to fall upon us. We can rest assured that there is no sin that is not covered by the blood of Christ. As one pastor says, what good would it do for God to love people whose sins still stand against them. The death of Jesus takes away that sin so that we have a righteous standing before God. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, let me say that we are glad you're here. But know that today, 
You stand condemned for your sin. And God's wrath remains on you. If you repent, place your trust in Jesus, you have life and forgiveness of sins. The gospel requires nothing of you, but promises you everything in Christ. If you do not repent, God's wrath remains on you. And there's a fearful expectation of judgment that awaits. This idea of God's judgment seems to be in conflict with what we hear God being about these days. Love, acceptance, happiness. Friends, we need the complete picture of God. God's judgment is in no way contrary to his other attributes. I think it's helpful for us to understand what theologians call the doctrine of God's simplicity. The doctrine of God's simplicity. This doctrine says that God's essence is undivided. He is not composed of parts. For example, God does not just have mercy. He is mercy. God does not just have love. He is love. His attributes are his essence. It's who he is. He does not possess these qualities, but he is these qualities. Therefore, we can say that God's love is his justice, is his goodness, is his wrath, is his mercy, and so on. He does not have one attribute one day and then has another one the next day. Reformed theologian Joel Beek writes this about this doctrine. The simplicity of God shines most brightly at the cross of Christ. There, at the climax of his redemptive work, Christ glorified not one, but all the attributes of God. We might tend to think of God's attributes at being at odds with one another as a consequence of man's sin. Justice quarreling without mercy, majesty as opposed to love. However, in Christ crucified, we see the whole glory of God resplendent in perfect harmony. God's wrath must be understood in light of his essence. Are there times where we tend to minimize God's judgment? Do we divide up God into different parts so that he conforms to our version of who we think he is? My God is a God of love. He would never send people to hell. Or maybe it's more personal. Surely God is all about my happiness. Would he really judge me for living with my significant other before we're married? We can do this for many reasons. But for most of us, we may be minimizing God in order to justify our sin. And the deeper we move into our sin, the more this justification for it comes. And the more the justification for it comes, the easier it will be to commit these sins in a deliberate manner. Doing the very thing the author of Hebrews just warned us about. The end result is that we created God in our own image. What about in our evangelism? 
what God are we telling people about? Are we, inf- are we afraid to preach the entirety of the gospel? There's a book out there that has sold into the millions, written by a celebrity megachurch pastor. And in that book, there's a section where he evangelizes to you. Here's what he says. Believe that God loves you and made you for his purposes. Receive Jesus into your life as Lord and Savior. Receive his forgiveness for your sins. Wherever you are reading this, I invite you to bow your head and quietly whisper the prayer that will change your eternity. Jesus, I believe in you and I receive you. If you sincerely meant that prayer, congratulations. Welcome to the family of God. Did you notice what's missing? If there is no wrath to escape, there is no gospel. If there is no mention of judgment against sin, then there really is no reason to repent. And we end up dividing God into parts to fit our theology. This judgment of God increases its weight over the next couple of verses. Anyone who disregards the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? The author continues his warning and appeals to God's righteous judgment in the past to form his lesser to greater argument here. Notice how God's character does not change over time. He still judges sin. If an Israelite disregarded the law of Moses and faced punishment on the evidence of two or three witnesses, how much more he who disregards the Son of God, which the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms point to, the three witnesses of the Old Testament. This is Jesus' shorthand way of saying in Luke 24 that the entire Bible is about me. The word disregard here mirrors the word deliberate mentioned earlier in verse 26. It's not simply a violation of the law of Moses, but is a total and complete rejection of God's authority and revelation. Trampling underfoot, profaning the blood, outraging the spirit. This is rhetorical language used to emphasize the seriousness of the offense. The forgiveness through Jesus' blood in the new covenant, through his work on the cross, is treated as if it had no effect. This person is outraging the spirit because of the way the shed blood of Christ is treated. And what is the work of the spirit? He glorifies Christ. He points to Jesus. To reject the spirit is to reject Christ. Because the Holy Spirit testifies about him. We really don't know what it looks like to trample over Christ. But the lack of specifics here may be intentional. One phrase that is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture is profaning the blood of the covenant. There are only two passages in the New Testament that refer to profaning the blood of the, of the new covenant. The first one is in 1 Corinthians 11, 25-30, in the context of the Lord's Supper. And the second one is obviously here. In both contexts, 
believers are in view, and God's judgment is in view. One commentator mentions that it is not possible to be outside the visible people and profane the covenant. One must be in a marriage in order to commit adultery. The pastor to the Hebrew Christians was invoking the fearsome Old Testament language and imagery in order to help them see the gravity of the situation. In Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, some of the members made a mockery of the body and blood of Christ. The ordinance had lost its importance. The promises of the gospel had no effect on their living. The broken body of Christ and his shed blood should have been taken in remembrance of him, but they were trampled on by their unrepentant sin. Paul urged them not to partake flippantly because if so, they ate and drank judgment on themselves. Did they forget that it was their sin for which the judgment of God came? The purpose of the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. God has poured out his judgment on Christ so that when you take the bread and the cup, you're not doing it to earn God's favor. You're resting in the salvation given to you through the gospel. Let the Lord's Supper be cause for you to savor this truth and strengthen you. The author of Hebrews mentioned earlier in chapter 10 that God will remember our sins no more. But both in the letter to the Corinthians and here in Hebrews, God's judgment is still to be taken seriously. Consider God's judgment. Don't take the bread and the cup half-heartedly. Consider God's judgment. Do not keep on sinning, lest you trample underfoot Jesus, profane his blood, and insult the Holy Spirit. Do we consider the weight of our sin in light of God's judgment? A.W. Pink once wrote, It is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it, which distinguishes a child of God from empty professors. It is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it, which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors. The question to ask is not merely, are you grieving over your sin? But why would you ever pursue the things for which the judgment of God came? Christian, you used to live in darkness, but now you are a child of God. You used to live in rebellion, but now you do not. The author of Hebrews has made it clear. You've been sanctified. You're living under the new covenant. Jesus' blood has atoned for your sins. So rest in the work that Christ has done. The Lord's Supper is one of the means by which we can come and commune with God together and find rest. In God's mercy, he has not left us without warning us of the danger of living in sin. He knows we are still vulnerable to the temptations of the world offered to us in our flesh. If we do not seek God's grace through the means that he has given us, if we do not rest in the finished work of Christ, 
and we make a mockery of him through the way we are living. And the author wants us to remind us of something. He says in verse 30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We see that judgment and fear are paired together to form the structure of this passage. They're paired at verse 27 and again at verse 30 and 31. This word, vengeance, is not the picture of God sitting at the top of an ant hill, burning up ants with his magnifying glass and finding pleasure in it. The word here means that which proceeds out of justice. It's punishment of what is rightly deserved. God's wrath is not arbitrary. It is purposeful. It is just. This is the same picture we get of Jesus in Revelation chapter 2. Jesus is standing over the church at Pergamum, threatening to bring holy judgment against the church for its sin. And notice the warning in Revelation 2 and the warning to the uh, the church here in Hebrews, they're both corporate. They're written to the church. Let us not neglect meeting together, for if we go on sinning. In Revelation 2, the church is called to repent. God is standing as judge over the church. Churches cannot thrive in healthy conditions unless there is judgment against sin. And one of the ways that God has made a way for sin to be judged in order for the church to thrive is through church discipline. Church discipline is not just kicking out people because they're bad. It's protecting the gospel and maintaining the purity of the church by excluding someone who claims to be a Christian but is living in unrepentant sin from membership and from partaking of the Lord's Supper so that this person does not profane it. If we call ourselves Christians, we heed these warnings and we don't live in unrepentant sin. The aim of discipline is never because we just don't like you, It's always done in love with the aim of restoration, with the aim of bringing this person back to the body. Churches who discipline are faithful churches, and in doing so, reflect the very character of God. Which means that we must be willing to confront others and be confronted ourselves. We want churches where it's normal to confess sin and receive forgiveness. It's better to have your sin confessed and taken care of now than on the last day. And we should have a spirit of thankfulness when sin is pointed out to us in the right way. Even more so, we should be bold enough to confront others in a spirit of gentleness when we see that individual straying from the faith. What would become of us if God never gave us instruction for, him act, for enacting his judgment 
on each other in a biblical, healthy way. We have a responsibility to one another to purge out the sin in our lives and to help one another persevere to the last day. I was a member at a local church in Portland. And during my time there, a church covenant was established. This is common in some Baptist circles. A piece of that covenant that we recited often says this. We will, by God's grace, forsake the paths of sin and walk in the ways of holiness all the days of our lives, striving together for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort. We will lovingly guard one another from the deceitfulness of sin, giving and receiving admonition for the advancement of this church, giving and receiving admonition in humility and affection. My point here is that a church covenant does not need to be established in order for you to commit to the spiritual well-being of your brother and sister in Christ. Aside from that, the question is, have you made promises like this to one another? Friends, God is standing as judge over the church. Do we live in a holy, healthy fear that this judgment could happen to us? Let us not cease warning and spurring one another on, just like the author of Hebrews did to his church body. So what does this look like practically? How can I live this out? Well, for one, you can find someone in this church to meet with on a regular basis for the purpose of confessing sin and finding forgiveness. Maybe it looks like reading through the book of Romans, meeting once a week and working through it verse by verse. Or maybe it looks like picking up The Mortification of Sin by John Owen and working through that book. Some of you are part of a small group. This could look like showing more commitment to your small group, knowing that these weekly gatherings are one of the means by which we persevere. We come to hear the word, to pray, to allow others to carry our burdens. Even this morning, you can direct your conversation after this gathering toward the text of scripture that we just read. Ask the person sitting next to you, how has God spoken to you today? This could look like talking to your elders, pulling them aside, seeking wisdom and guidance, asking for prayer for the things that you may be struggling with. Well, I don't know how you would answer him, but Bishop Spong seems to misunderstand the character of God. He would probably scoff at this warning passage. But as we have seen, this warning passage is for our good. It's the means by which God causes us to persevere. What Bishop Spong does not supply is an answer to his own argument against the nature of God. God's judgment is a good thing. 
It's cause for endurance because, first, this judgment has been poured out on Christ. We do not do anything to earn our salvation. But, second, this warning is in the Bible for a reason. Consider God's judgment. Do not keep on sinning. If you find yourself struggling in the faith, remember what God has given you to guide you and to keep you. He has given you these warnings. Don't do this or this will happen. And what he has also given you are ways to keep you from ignoring these warnings and abandoning Christ. Gather with the church. Hear the preached word. Participate in the Lord's Supper. Confront your sin in the presence of others. So, to the Christian today, consider God's judgment against sin and persevere unto eternal life. Let me close in prayer. Father, we pray that we would be a church that listens to these warnings. We pray we would be a church that forsakes sin and looks to be free from its power. Let us not neglect coming together on Sundays. Let us not neglect the means of grace which you have provided for us to find encouragement and nourishment for our souls. The psalmist says that your judgments are true and just. In the book of Revelation, your judgments are cause for worship. May you reveal more and more of yourself to us that we would worship you for who you have revealed yourself to be. In your name I pray. Amen.